The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the business. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. On the show this week, George Osborne cuts child benefits to top earners and proposes a radical shake-up of welfare. Is this a political masterstroke or a suicide note? Bankers turn themselves into business dragons with plans to put a billion quid behind small businesses. So is this another beastly idea from the people we love to hate? And we take a musical perspective on the money markets with Texan fund manager John Shane turned country singer Mel Hazard. And as if all of those treats weren't enough, we've got another instalment of Harjun Chang's 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. This is The Business from The Guardian. And today I want to explain to the British people why we have to sort out the public finances, how we will do it, and the prize at the end. A reinvigorated, prosperous, united Britain of which we can all be proud. Cautious applause there for George Osborne at the Conservative Party conference this week. And no wonder it's cautious. The Chancellor announced two big cuts. First, a cap on state benefits to all but those with disabilities. And second, he's going to take away child benefit for top earners. The Guardian's Nick Watt gave us his reading of the reaction in the conference hall. I think that there are mixed feelings uh, amongst Conservatives uh, after George Osborne's speech. On the one hand, the party is pleased uh, that they're getting hold of the deficit. That's what uh, a Tory government should do. But there's quite a lot of unease about the child benefit uh, cut. Um, A lot of Tories are saying, look, we understand that tough action's got to be taken. We understand that maybe we have to reduce child benefit. But they're saying... We, we, the Conservative Party, are going to take a lot of pain for doing this, and all we're raising from this is a billion pounds. Now, an individual could do a lot of money with a billion pounds, but the nation as a whole, that is a relatively small amount of money. And they're essentially saying, that feels like about 10 billion pounds worth of pain, and the gain is only a billion. So they don't quite understand what it is, and they're thinking, is George Osborne sort of warming us up? And in the future, there'll be a greater assault on child benefit, or a greater assault on other universities. Benefits. Nick Watt there in Birmingham. Well, let's hear a bit more about what the Chancellor actually had to say, along with commentary from Observer columnist Will Hutton. But if this welfare state is going to gain the trust of the British people, it needs to reflect the British sense of fair play. So I can announce today that for the first time we will introduce a limit on the total amount of benefits any one family can receive. And the limit will be set according to this very simple principle. Unless they have disabilities to cope with, no family should get more from living on benefits than the average family gets from going out to work. Well, it's a slightly topsy-turvy view of fairness because the people who are in work are the ones who have have fortune. And that that you, you use the benchmark as what they make as the value of what you're going to give someone who's out of work, who may have needs that objectively um, require your support, even though they're more than um, the earnings of the average person, is to turn it on its head. I mean, I think that um, the heart of fairness is getting um, your proportional rewards for your proportional efforts, and looking out for people who have bad luck and sharing in their good luck. And 
this is slightly turning it on its head. I mean, so in that sense, I don't think it passes my fairness test. Its fairness is perceived through the eyes of the lucky rather than through the eyes of the unlucky. We still pay over a billion pounds a year in child benefit to higher rate taxpayers. Now, believe me, I understand that most higher rate taxpayers are not the super rich. But a system that taxes working people at high rates only to give it back in child benefit is very difficult to justify at a time like this. And it's very difficult to justify taxing people on low incomes to pay for the child benefit of those earning so much more than them. These days, we've really got to focus the resources on where they are most needed. We've got to be tough, but fair. And that's why we will withdraw child benefit from households with a higher rate taxpayer. Well, I do think this is, this, this is closer to my definitions of fairness. Um, because by saying that no home with a high income earner paying high rates of tax should receive child benefit, he's saying he's taking uh, up to a billion pounds away from advantaged homes and using it to um, be more generous to people who move from benefit into work because they're at the right at the bottom of the pile. And that does pass my fairness test. And in the pain to come, is the Chancellor going to make bankers pay their fair share? I want Britain to be the home of successful, competitive and stable financial services. I want to see genuine talent rewarded. But let me make this clear today. We will not allow money to flow unimpeded out of those banks into huge bonuses if that means money is not also flowing out in credit to the small businesses who did nothing to cause this crash and suffered most in it. I think it does. I think that um, uh, Vince Cable, the business secretary, has announced his, in terms of his consultation uh, on takeovers. Um, the Banking Commission is um, already doing its work and is expected to report next year, and it's another signal to the Banking Commission, you know, don't worry, think radically. Um, it's a warning that the levy on um, banks that, that uh, Osborne has proposed could be increased. I mean, this was, again, you know, I think I thought quite a, a big warning shot to the city and the banking community. And also, it's important, it was an important statement also. I mean, it's only two or three years ago, remember, that, I mean, politicians like George Osborne, like probably like Gordon Brown, were singing the praises of the city and saying everybody in the country must follow their lead. This is a big, big change of tone, a really huge change of tone. Will Hutton there. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by Deputy City Editor Jill Trainer and the Head of Society Health and Education Coverage, Patrick Butler. Patrick, did what Osborne had to say on Monday afternoon, did that meet your fairness test? I didn't think it was fair at all, whatsoever. <laughs> What interests me about, con- about what he said on Monday is the social consequences of his cap on benefits. And I think this is going to be very scary. I think it's going to be fascinating all the same. I think what we're going to see as a result of this is a huge migration of people. Uh, in London, we're talking possibly up to 82,000 people. Some of the poorest families in the capital moving from 
inner city London to the outer boroughs. And I think the consequences of that will be astonishing. OK, let me uh, ask you just to explain that in a bit more detail, because we had two big things announced in terms of welfare yesterday. One was an end to universal child benefit. And the other was a whole series of changes to the to, to a variety of other benefits to kind of shake up a welfare provision in total. So w- what are you talking about when you're talking about pe- poor people being moved out of cities? Well, I think what's going to happen is that uh, if... Uh, if you're on benefits, you're out of work and you're living in inner city London, then you're in receipt of several benefits, one of most important of which will be housing benefit. Now, that's going to be capped at £500. So if in inner London, if you're talking Camden or Westminster or parts of Islington, the money that you will get will not cover your living costs. The only way that uh, you could survive is to move out. If these welfare plans be put into place, what does the city, what does the metropolis of the future look like? Well, this is a really interesting question, isn't it? Because I don't think anyone really knows what it is going to look like. Well, if you follow this through, it's, and if, if I pick, heard what you were saying correctly, then it's a few rich people living in the centre and all the poor people moved well, off to the suburbs. Well, well, that's not quite true because this only affects tenants who are in private rented accommodation. But now, if you're, if, yeah. if, you're in a, if you're in social housing, a council house, for example, you know, that you won't be... A, by this because it's unlikely your rents will be over that level um, but I think uh, yes it will it will probably feel different now I don't know what happens to those properties that are vacated I mean does the landlord for example have whole lists of people who want to come and rent that that property at you know 700 pound a week or whatever I don't know it's going to be interesting to see I suppose in the free market the rent of the rented property should Drop fall. like a stone, yeah. You see, they, if, if the free market works, what should really happen is that the private landlord should reduce his rent. But there's obviously the very good chance there that if he's a buy-to-let landlord, he then can't make his mortgage payments. So we're back round in another circle where bad debts pile up in the banking sector. Well, but I think the evidence that I've heard is that landlords are saying, well, we don't think we are going to reduce our rent. Yeah, I, I'm um, not suggesting... That any th- I'm just, yeah. you know, there is an argument yeah. that you could make if you were a free yeah. marketeer. And we all know the free market doesn't work because we saw what happened during the banking crisis. Jill, what about you? I mean, it was, it was a speech that was actually much heavier on what he was going to do about welfare than, it, than what he was going to do about banks. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was fascinating. There were pretty much, what, two, three sentences on the city, which is quite fascinating, I think, for a chancellor who, in opposition, had used previous speeches to lambast the city and hit them much harder. I mean, you know, this warning about the fact you're not lending, so, you know, you shouldn't pay bonuses. You know, the previous government said this and yet did absolutely nothing about that. So, uh, to me, he actually said very little about the city at all. Um, And one of the things that we've been talking about and been talking to Lib Dems about today is this idea that, you know, uh, this is saving a billion pounds. Well, the end of the universal child benefit. The end of the universal child benefit. But, you know, last year, the government got £3.5 billion from a one-off tax on bankers' bonuses. So, you know, hit the city again. Final on. question to you both. Um, in two weeks' time, uh, Osborne's going to lay out the comprehensive spending review, which will put into detail how he's going to make the sharpest spending cuts that we've seen in Britain since 1945. Did the speech he give this week... Was that the speech of a Chancellor who's softening up the electorate for a really sharp decline in their living standards? Patrick, you first. I'm not sure that you can soften people up enough when it comes to this. And I'm not sure that a lot of people out there, the general public, really know what's going to happen to them. I speak to a lot of people within public services who work in local government and the the health service, and they look in horror at what they're going to have to do in terms of taking out 30% of the budget. 
And I'm not sure that the public have quite realised what that's going to entail. And I think what, what the 20th of October, when he makes this statement, will do is that will be a point at which they start to, it comes home to them, what's going to happen. And there'll be a sequence after that when councils uh, finalise their budgets in November, December of this year, when all of a sudden the reality of those closed children's centres, uh, the teaching assistants, the wards that closed on the health service in the, in the hospitals, all that will, will suddenly become apparent. And I don't think you can really prepare people enough for that. It was Mervyn King, wasn't it, who said that whoever won the election would only ever be in power for one term because it was going to be so dreadful. You know, a senior colleague stopped me in the corridor today and said, after the big discussion, you know, about the end of child benefit and other things, and said, it's grim, isn't it? I was like, yes. You know, Patrick's point's entirely right. You, You can't soften up the electorate for this. And even when you've got the governor of the Bank of England saying this is a one term government because it's going to be so bad. You know, they've been proved right, these Bank of England governors, in the past. Yes, it's the theme tune to Dragon's Den, the programme where some of the most disliked people in Britain refuse to finance perfectly good business ideas. No wonder, then, that bankers have announced a plan to copy the show. The six big UK banks had set up a Dragon's Fund worth a billion quid for small businesses. Jill, what's the story about? Look, the banks are desperately trying to head off the government from stopping them get their bonuses if they're not lending to big businesses. They're trying to come up with every idea that they can. One of the ideas that they've come up with is, is the idea of a sort of seed fund for businesses where they can take equity investments in small businesses rather than straightforward lending, which is what a lot of the argument's been. Um, you know, these big six banks, we're talking a billion quid here, maybe a billion. I'm not sure that's exactly the right sum. This is nothing. You know, the lending targets currently on RBS and Lloyds alone is almost 90 billion. So we're talking here about a drop in the ocean. I'm a cynic sometimes, as you know. And the other thing I think about equity investments is banks tend to make more money from equity investments than they do from lending. So you can trust me that there'll be something in this for the banks as well. Assuming Vince Cable and George Osborne think it's a goer. Is this an attempt, what, to sweeten up the government and say, look, if you don't force us to lend, then we can do other stuff instead? Yeah. Vince Cable has put out this uh, very detailed paper on, on, on lending, and it's just the, the consultation's just closed. Now, Cable's got to make a decision. Is he going to put formal lending targets, not just on the bailed-out banks, RBS and Lloyds, but across the entire sector? He's being lobbied in every direction to urge him not to do this. New entrants are even moaning that it'll crowd them out. The banks are coming up with ideas like this. Now, where will it end up? Cable clearly is listening to the arguments about lending targets not working. They didn't work for the previous regime and they're not working currently. What he comes up with instead is the big, is the big question and nobody knows the answer just yet. And now for something completely different. Don't mark our love to market. Don't kiss our love goodbye. You're still the one I dream of. Please give me one more try. I know that. Or is it because that song was performed by country singer Mo Hazard, who in real life just happens to be a respected Nashville based investment advisor, John Shane? Well, I'm delighted to say that John joins me online now. John, what's a nice money manager like you doing in cowboy clothes and singing country songs? <laughs> well, uh, maybe I should tell you how this started. Um, we, uh, 
you know, I, I did a little bit of humor and music in college, and that was in the early 80s. And then uh, when the financial crisis, just the first bit of it started, and I guess it was, was it July and August of 2007, so a little over three years ago, I have a, a friend named Josh May here in Nashville, a very bright guy who is a central bank watcher. He works for a firm in New York, but he does it from here. And um, we were both as the first hedge fund or two had failed, I think those Bear Stearns hedge funds were cracking. Uh, Bear Stearns itself hadn't failed. There hadn't been any bailouts yet, but we thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is a slow motion train wreck in real estate, and it's going to be a festival for moral hazard. And uh, we're both financial guys, but we're also both uh, Nashvillians, so we thought, oh, that sounds like the name of a uh, country singer, Moral Hazard. And... Um, and I don't know, I just sort of thought, you know, well, the idea is funny, but it would be funny if he actually existed. And I just sort of, I kind of wanted to see Merle exist. And so that was on a uh, Wednesday, and then we did the, I recorded the song on Saturday, and, and, and we shot the video on Sunday, and put it on YouTube Sunday, and then uh, emailed it to just a few friends, and then it sort of caught on. And uh, it was in the New York Times by, you know, Wednesday of the next week. And nowadays, when you release a new video... How many hits do you, do, you, do you typically receive? It varies. You know, um, I guess the, the I was just looking at the last one I did, Double Dippin' is up to about 20,000. The biggest one I had, um, Hedge, is up to about 120,000. So it's a small but select group. I mean, it's not, I'm not competing with uh, Kings of Leon or something like that. How I wish I'd had a working H E D G E. Yes, my H-E-D-G-E-F-U-N-D Went bankrupt today Me and all of my capital Inside the suit, you're telling us, there was always a performer bursting to get out. But how on earth do you define the difference between John Shane, money manager in Nashville, and Merle Hazard, viral phenomenon? Yeah, I'm very boring, and Merle is fairly interesting, right? Merle kind of talks like this, and he sings, and, um, uh, you know, Merle would say, my, my daddy was a coal miner, my mama was a certified financial planner. Uh, I'm a guy who, you know, studied philosophy in college, went to law school. Uh, I'm, I just sit there and crunch numbers all day and read annual reports. Um, now, in college, I wrote for the Humor magazine, and I had a, a pop band, but that was, what, 20, 30 years ago, 25 years ago? Um, so Merle is my... Actually, my wife says it's a relatively safe way of having a midlife crisis. It's maybe my fantasy of uh, what <laughs> what life could be, but I only do it uh, on the weekends and evenings. And, you and when, you're, when you're crunching these numbers and you're looking at the annual reports... Is there a bit of you that's got that's channeling Merle? Do you, do you ever think, I wonder what Merle would make of this? Yes, yes. Sometimes I, I really like inflation or deflation is uh, one of the songs that's been kind of popular. And that was literally a song that just sort of came to me as I was, you know, trying to think. As, as, as somebody who buys equities, stocks, you know, very different consequences for inflation and deflation. If you have inflation, those are good for, that's good very long term for stocks. And deflation is horrible, and I'm sitting there thinking about it, and just this melody, <laughs> the question, will we have inflation or deflation? Inflation or deflation, tell me if you can. Inflation or deflation, tell me if you can. We become Zimbabwe, 
Or will we be Japan? So what do all your other fellow money managers, who presumably must know about this by now, what do they make of Mel Hazard? When it first came out, people would say, you know, secretly, John, I saw your video. You know, like, sort of like, I saw you last night somewhere where you weren't supposed to be. It's like, that's fine. I, I you know, I'm putting these on purpose. Um, um, so I think they partly didn't know what to make of it. But um, no, I think, you know, most of them are, they seem to like it. Uh, from, or at least they tell me they like it. And you're saying uh, there, I mean, you, you've heightened differences between you and Mel Hazard, but, but actually one of the things that really strikes anyone who looks at your videos, um, there are references in them to the failings of free market economics, there are references in them to the failure of Reaganomics. They're quite political, these songs. Basically, uh, a lot of times political shortcuts are taken, you know, things that are not in the long-term interests of the populace, um, and and that but but that are politically expedient and uh, it's, of course it's hard to have those jobs but I do think it's it's fair game for for those of us uh, you know on the outside of that to um, to point out and to try and encourage the regulators to do a better job. But is there a sense in which you're taking the kind of topic uh, normally talked about by economists or politicians or heaven forfend editorial writers and turning them into something that ordinary people might actually be interested in watching for three minutes on YouTube. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of writing them for myself and just uh, an imaginary small audience of, of friends. But I like the idea that, that, that these can make sense to people who otherwise wouldn't, who wouldn't tune into these issues. John, you're either the uh, most uh, 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 flamboyant money manager I've ever talked to, or Merle, you're either you're, you're possibly the most well-educated country singer I've, I've talked to. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And now for a more sober perspective on the mechanics of capitalism. We continue with another reading by economist Harjun Chang of his latest book, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. Free market policies rarely make poor countries rich. Here are the profiles of two developing countries. Until a decade ago, country A had a highly protectionist trade policy with an average industrial tariff rate well above 30%. Despite the recent tariff reduction, important visible and invisible trade barriers remain. The country heavily regulates cross-border flows of capital and has a state-owned and highly regulated banking sector. The country has a large number of state-owned enterprises, many of which are propped up by government subsidies. Its protection of intellectual property rights is notoriously weak, making it the pirate capital of the world. It does not have democratic elections, and corruption is endemic. Similarly, country B has had the highest tariff protection in the world for the last few decades, with an average industrial tariff of 40 to 55%. It heavily discriminates against foreign investors, especially in the banking sector. Its protection of intellectual property rights is patchy, particularly marred by its uh, refusal to protect foreigners' copyrights. The majority of the population cannot vote, and vote buying and electoral fraud are widespread. Corruption is rampant, and the country has never recruited a single civil servant through an open competitive process. You think that both these countries are headed for developmental disasters. But think again. Country A is today's China. Actually, some of you may have guessed that. However, few of you would have guessed that country B is the United States. 
that is around 1880, when it was somewhat poorer than today's China and was one of the fastest growing and rapidly becoming one of the richest countries in the world. The Chinese and the American examples debunk the myth that only free market free trade policies will bring about prosperity. Of course, you may say that, however dramatic they are, two examples do not prove the case. That's true. However, not just the US and China, but virtually all of today's rich countries, from 18th century Britain down to 20th century Japan and South Korea, became rich through protection subsidies and regulation and not through free market policies. Also, after adopting free market free trade policies since the 1980s, economic growth has slowed down and inequality increased in almost all the developing countries. Few countries have become rich through free market policies and few ever will. That's all we've got for you this week. Thanks my guests, Nick Watt, Will Hutton, Patrick Butler, Jill Trainer, and of course John Shane. I'll leave you with another of John's alter ego's foot-tapping fiscal ditties. Till next week, from me, Adit Chakraborty, and producer Jason Phipps, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.